Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Let's pray. Father, would you help us to come to Jesus now and eat and drink? We come believing that these are words that give us life. These are words of deepest reality. Would you give us the humility to receive them? Would you give us clarity to understand them? Would you keep your promise to be present? That your Holy Spirit will convict us of sin. Lead us to your grace and empower us for obedience. We pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen. As many of you know, my family and I lived in Malawi, Africa for a couple of years. And Malawi, like many other places in the developing world, has a food staple. It's called Nsema. It's made from ground-up white corn, and they they make it into a, it's kind of like congealed grits, which sounds gross, but it's not. It kind of grows on you. We liked it. (laughs) Uh, But but Nsema is very, very essential and important to the Malawian diet. So much so that if the corn crop fails, starvation threatens that part of the world. The people we read about in John chapter 6 also had a staple. Their staple would have been bread made from barley. And it was essential food so that if the barley crop failed, starvation threatened. Now why does that matter? Why am I talking about staples? Well, in the opening story of John chapter 6, a hungry crowd comes to Jesus. And in that hungry crowd is a young boy who has some of the staple with him. He has five barley loaves and a couple of fish for protein. And Jesus takes that tiny and meager meal and he multiplies it. 
and he feeds these people full with plenty of food left over. And that event sparks the conversation that we just read about. This conversation about bread that stretches from verse 25, actually all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 70. In other words, Jesus is talking about having a staple. He's talking about having something in your life more essential than bread that sustains you, that nourishes you, that enables you to live and to keep on living. Jesus is talking about having a staple for everyone, wherever you live. And of course, he's speaking beyond grain that's harvested and milled and baked. But what he says is a little mysterious, isn't it? So I want us to ask a couple of questions this morning. A couple of questions about this essential diet that Jesus proposes for us. What should we eat and how should we eat it? First of all, what should we eat? This group of people in John chapter 6, as they hear Jesus talk about bread, their minds wander to manna. You remember the ancient Israelites who were in the desert between Egypt and the promised land. How did they survive? They survived because every morning, six days a week, they got up, walked out their door, and there was bread on the ground. So this crowd, they hear Jesus talk, and they start to think, is that what he's talking about? Jesus, are you, are you saying that you can do that? That you can give us miraculous bread like that that's on the ground every morning we walk out our doors? And in response, Jesus does a little bit of a misdirection. He he's says to them, he reminds them where the manna came from. He reminds them that manna didn't come from Moses. Moses was very significant, Moses was very powerful, but he didn't give the people manna. Manna rained down from heaven. It came directly from God. From God's hand. Now why did Jesus go there? When the people ask about manna, why does he talk about the source of manna? Well, he wants them and he wants us to realize that manna was good, but it wasn't enough. Manna was good. He doesn't criticize the connection that these people make to what happened in the past to God's people. Manna was good, but it wasn't enough. It not only fed the people in the desert, it anticipated something more. It anticipated something greater. It anticipated something better. Those hints of something more, of something 
better, there are more here in this chapter, John chapter 6. It's not only manna that this chapter talks about. It also says that all of these events occurred during Passover. Which was the feast that remembered and celebrated how God rescued his people from slavery. In addition to that, after Jesus feeds this large group of people on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, which which would have represented the wilderness, he crosses that sea into the region of the promised land. And do you remember how he crosses that sea? He walks on the stormy water and brings his disciples safely to the shore. An astute reader of the Bible That should set off bells. What does that sound like? The people of Israel walking across the Red Sea out of Egypt and across the River Jordan into the Promised Land. This teaching, these events, they are screaming something better is happening. Something more is here. A new exodus. A new freedom. A new possibility for human life. More than just survival in the wilderness, but the full flourishing of life from God that extends beyond even death. And that something more is happening in Jesus. It is happening in Him. That's why He says to them, you should want more than bread. You should want signs. You should let the bread that I've given you point you to me. So verse 33. The true bread from heaven that we need is not a what. It's a he. Jesus says twice. He says it in verse 35 and then in verse 48. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the bread that has rained down from heaven. I am your staple. I am the food that will sustain life as God intended it. He goes on later in the chapter in verses 52 and following to say shockingly that if you want this life that is from God and extends beyond death, you must eat his flesh and drink his blood. What is the food that we should eat? Jesus. I think I've told this before, but I love this story about Maurice Sendak, the great author of children's books. A young boy wrote to him saying how much he loved Sendak's books. And so Sendak responded, and he wrote a note to the boy, and he gave him, he sent him a hand-drawn picture. The boy's mother responded. She wrote back and said, Thank you so much. My son loved your picture so much that he ate it. (laughs) That should be our response to Jesus. And Jesus, God has sent us a picture of Himself. Not in a drawing, but in a person. God in the flesh who bled for us. And so, we should eat Him. Yeah, that sounds weird, right? That sounds weird. That sounds strange. It sounded strange to these people. So strange 
that by the end of this chapter, the very large crowd had become a very small group. They're like, this is too weird. We're out here. <laughs> In a minute, I'm going to talk about what it means to eat Jesus. But before I get there, I want you to reflect with me just a moment about how we, like these people, often settle for non-sustaining bread. How we settle for bread that doesn't satisfy. We try to fuel our lives, certain relationships, certain experiences, certain accomplishments, certain possessions. I, I don't know if you're like this, but I can live on a compliment for weeks. Somebody compliments the sermon. I can, that gives me energy for weeks. That motivates me. It energizes me. But you know what? That energy always <coughs> runs out. That energy always runs out. And I hear criticism or I hear that inner voice of inadequacy and I'm left hungry and tired. Whether it's approval like that or wealth, or status, or money, or pleasure. We go after breads that won't satisfy. Foods that leave us hungry. It's like cotton candy. These things look so substantial. You bite into it and it's just air. Those breads cannot nourish our lives. Jesus calls us to a better bread. He calls us to the bread of His own self. But again, that's weird. So let's ask a second question. If Jesus is the food that we should eat, how do we eat this food? How do we eat this bread from heaven? <clears throat> well, think about the logic of verse 35. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never be hungry. Whoever, and here's the key word, believes in me shall never thirst. In this chapter and throughout this gospel, eating and drinking are images. They are metaphors for belief. We eat Jesus by believing in him. And in particular, believing in what he has done, what he has accomplished through his cross and resurrection. That's why he says, eat my flesh, drink my blood. That is an anticipation of the sacrifice that he will make on the cross. He is saying, I am the Passover lamb. I am the feast of forgiveness and redemption and new life. So come to me, trust in me. Believe in me and feast on what God has done for this world through me. We eat by believing. Now, consider for a moment what that says about belief. What that says about the nature of faith and what it means to live by faith. If we eat by believing, what does that say about believing? Well, it says a lot. Let me pull out three implications. 
first. If we eat by believing, that means that believing is not passive. Believing is not passive. Did you notice how this conversation about bread also brought up a conversation about work? Jesus said, you have to work. You have to work for this eternally sustaining food. And the people say, okay, all right, well, what do we do? What do you want us to do, Jesus? And what's the work? How does he respond? Verse 29. The work is believing on him who God has sent. Now understand, Jesus isn't pulling an NPR pledge drive here, where something that you think is free, four or five weeks of year is not so free anymore. <laughs> and he's saying, believing is not passive. It is an active reception. It is an active reception. If someone prepares you a meal, what's your job? Not to sit completely passive, paralyzed. It is to eat it. It's to enjoy it. If someone gives you a gift, what's your job? What's the work of getting a gift? It's to open it. It's to receive it. It's to be grateful for it. That's the work that Jesus gives us to do in this world. It is to actively and gratefully receive the generous gift of God to us in Him. Second implication. If we eat by believing, believing is not passive, and believing is not merely past. You don't eat, or you don't live, excuse me, by eating just once. Right? You eat, and you keep on eating. And so you believe, and you keep on believing. In a few minutes, we're going to sing the song, Grace Greater Than Our Sin. The third verse of that song, the final verse of that song, asked us, will you this moment His grace receive? That moment is every moment. It is every moment the question, will you receive His grace? Will you receive His forgiveness every day, not just on Sunday? Will you receive His empowering presence, His Spirit that He has given to you every moment? Believing is not just past, it is a present practice. Third implication. If we eat by believing, that means believing is not passive, it is not merely passive, and it is not just thinking. Believing is not just thinking. Please hear me, my dear Presbyterian smarty pants friend. <laughs> believing is not just thinking. It is ingesting presence and the words and the gifts and the benefits of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. Some people think that especially the end of or, or the part beginning in verse 42 of John chapter 6 refers to this meal, the Lord's Supper, communion. 
I don't think that's the primary reference. However, what it does, and it says, Christian, this meal that you take on Sundays, that must become the pattern for the rest of the week. That is how you must relate to Jesus this week. To chew on His promises. To swallow, to ingest who He is and what He has done for you. In verse 56, He says, If you do what I'm saying, I abide in you and you abide in me. That is way more than correct propositions. That word abide is central for the Gospel of John and it's just the word for home made into a verb. This is the experience of belonging, of intimacy with Christ day after day. His presence, His word, the benefits of all that He has done with you, in you, through you. Let me see if I can make this a little bit more concrete. I know that's it's a little fuzzy. Um, this week, we read in community Bible reading, we read Matthew chapter 12, which takes beautiful words from Isaiah and applies them to Jesus. It says, A bruised reed he will not crush. A smoldering wick he will not quench. Do you know what it means to believe in Jesus? It means that we go beyond saying, hey, look, that's a cool connection to the Old Testament. That affirms the inspiration of the Bible. Now, that's true, and that's good, but we need to go beyond that. To believe in Jesus is to take those words and hear them about ourselves. To hear in those words Jesus being that for us. It is to receive His comfort. It is to realize and to deeply experientially know that as our light flickers and fades because of sorrow, because of disappointment, because of failure, Jesus bled so that He could take His hand and shield the flame so that He could protect you. So that He could restore you to the glory for which you were made. Can you receive that? Can you allow that to seep into your bones? So that it nourishes you. So that it empowers you. So that it lifts you up and enables you to walk in obedience to Jesus. If we'll come to know Jesus this way as the true bread, if we'll live believing in Him in a way that could be described as eating and drinking, we'll experience the transformation that we see in the disciples in this chapter. In the opening story, Jesus sees the hungry crowd coming towards him, and he mischievously turns to Philip. And he says, Philip, where are we going to get bread for these people? 
And Philip, like me, he checked the budget. And he was like, oh, we're not. (laughs) Even if we had a ton more money than we actually have, we couldn't even come close. We could get everybody a crumb made. And John, the storyteller, tells us that Jesus asks it in order to test, in order to train, in order to teach his disciples. So that by the end of the chapter, he asks them another question. The crowds are going the opposite direction. They're walking away. And they're walking away angry and offended. Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, You going to go with them? You going to go as well? And Peter says, What should become the driving force of our lives? Where do we have to go? You have the bread. You have the words of life. You see, Peter, he had tasted the bread and he wanted to keep on tasting. Where are we going to go? He has the words of life. I mentioned earlier the Malawian staple of Insina. The tragic thing about that food is that it wasn't indigenous to the peoples of Malawi. It was imposed on them by British colonialism. And it is a much less healthy, a much less nutritious diet than they had before colonialism imposed itself on them. One of the sad effects of the oppression of oppression in our world. But you know what? We live in a world that has been colonized by spiritually non-sustaining bread. Our hearts, our lives are often colonized by food that will leave us spiritually malnourished. Let's turn away from that emptiness. Let's turn away from the cotton candy. And let's turn to the fullness of God's bread in Jesus. Let's pray.